turning the page from Noah and Babel, now we're turning into uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 9, where we read about Abram. So read along with me there in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out for Haran. He took his wife Sarai and his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. At the time of the Canaanites were in the land, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offsprings I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east to Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Thank you, Todd. As we're turning to Genesis chapter 12. Before I pray this morning, I want to acknowledge that our teenagers made it safely back from Snowbird. So we want to thank Dan and the other chaperones who led our teens this week. We had 18 people go up to Snowbird, and I'm hearing great reports from what happened. I've also heard great reports from our mission trip that the teens took a few weeks ago as well, when 13 people went to Clarkston and were able to serve there. And we have a mission trip coming up that several are involved in going to Greece here in August. So I want to pray for all of these opportunities, things that have happened, and things that we anticipate yet to come. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can come before you today on the basis of your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, as we are gathered together, we are mindful that we are sinners who desperately need the forgiveness of our sins. There are different ways that our sin come out and different ways that we struggle with our sin. For some of us, it's overwhelming feelings of guilt for things that have been done to us or for things that we have done. For others, it's a constant nag of shame that we worry that we will be found out for being frauds or hypocrites. For others still, there are no feelings of guilt or shame because there are feelings of pleasure that we have simply indulged our flesh and indulged our desires and we simply follow them wherever they lead. God, I pray wherever, whatever state we may find ourselves in that we would be reminded and renewed in the grace that you have shown us in Jesus Christ as we look to your word this morning. Father, I also want to thank you for how that grace is working its way out in the life of our church. Thank you for our teenagers and leaders that have been able to participate 
in the Clarkston mission trip and in Snowbird Camp. Father, I pray that you would bear much fruit in the lives of our students as they have time to reflect on the things that they have taught, the things that they have experienced, and the people that they have rubbed shoulders with. Father, I pray that you would use these kinds of occasions to remind us that you're saving sinners, not just in our context in church, but you're gathering sinners from every tribe, tongue, and nation for the glory of God. And God, I pray for the upcoming mission trip to Greece, that you would bless Jerry and others if they have set aside time in August to go and to willingly and gladly serve alongside full-time missionaries and to help their families and encourage their children as those missionaries receive training and instruction and encouragement. Father, I pray that in all these activities that will happen in Greece, that you would provide not just the way for them to go, but that you would provide ways for them to encourage and to bless as they were there. And God, through all of this, I pray that your gospel would be made known and be made great. And Father, I ask that you would help us as we learn to lean on your promises, that we would see your promises overcoming human rebellion at every turn. That in spite of our sin and in spite of the brokenness of the world that we live in, that it is in fact your grace that triumphs over all. So Father, it is to this hope we cling. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen. Amen. As you've turned to Genesis chapter 12, we've now entered a new phase of the book of Genesis. The first 11 chapters lay out the creation account and all of the failures of people that come afterward. God created everything perfectly, and he created it and declared it good. And yet man in our hubris disobeyed God and broke everything. God, however, didn't respond to human rebellion by simply wiping off his hands like this and saying, I'm out, I give up, I don't care. He did reach a point where it says in Genesis chapter 6 that evil was so pervasive and so affecting his creation that he was ready to pass judgment over it all. Yet in his desire to clean up the earth and to pass judgment, it says Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That is, we've seen that Noah and his family were given grace upon grace. They were not deserving in some special class of people that God had set aside because of something he recognized in them, but they were a special family that God chose to bless with his favor and forgiveness. Even on the heels of the flood and its aftermath, when they came to rest on Mount Ararat and then descended and resettled the land with the sons of Noah, we quickly find after the fall that Noah and his sons still remained sinners, that though God had passed judgment over all creation, wiping out most humans, the humans that remained continued to have a sin nature and continued to struggle with sin. We saw Noah in his drunken stupor and his son Shem come and expose him for his wrongdoing. And not Shem, it's Ham. That's why I had my mental glitch there for a moment. Ham and his son Canaan. But in spite of their sin, 
what do we see at the end of chapter 9? But God makes another promise. And he says, I will not destroy the earth again, and I will give you a rainbow to declare my promise and to show you my faithfulness. Then shortly after that, chapter 11, we see the Tower of Babel, where man and their sinfulness, again, rather than submitting to God, they are choosing to follow their own will, their own ways, and they decide to build a tower that will approach God. And God decisively thwarts their plans. He confuses their language, he disrupts the construction, and he scatters the people around the earth just as he had commanded them to go and to multiply and to fill the earth. Now God has forced their hand by stopping their sinful plan. Enter chapter 11 at the end where we find the genealogy of Shem. This is the godly line of Noah opposite of Ham and his descendants who were the evil ones who were rebelling against God and that God placed a curse on, the Shemites were those who were faithful and those who were following God. And as the author of Genesis, Moses, is writing out the genealogy of the sons of Shem, we see that God is faithful from one generation to the next all the way down to his covenant man, Abram. And here we arrive at chapter 12, a new section of the book that will continue on through chapter 25, where God will speak to Abram for the benefit of all people. Though Abram himself is a sinner, one who has struggled with polytheism in his heritage and his background, one who has rebelled against God and not done all that God had commanded, and yet one that God chose for his special covenant promise. In every generation, the world is filled with both pessimists and optimists. I'm not sure which Abram was, if he were a pessimist or an optimist, but he seemed to be living a fairly comfortable life, that he was with his father and one of his brothers. He had his nephew living with him because his other brother had passed away, the father of Lot. And Abram seemed to be gathering and accumulating wealth and prosperity for himself. It would be easy to imagine that he was probably one of the optimists who saw things getting better for himself. Yet Abram had no idea what God was about to do when he came to him in chapter 1 and spoke words of life to him. He didn't simply offer him more livestock to enrich his herds. And he didn't offer him a palace where he could set up shop and reside and even rule over people, but instead he came to Abraham with a promise. So whatever kind of person he was, whether an optimist or a pessimist, God came to Abraham and showed that his promise would overcome human rebellion in every generation after him just as it had already overcome rebellion in every generation before him, that God would remain faithful from one to the next until the coming of Christ. And then even through the coming of Christ, he's faithful to us to extend the forgiveness of our sins. Well, as God came to Abraham, and I'm going to call him sometimes Abraham because that will become his new name in Genesis chapter 15, Abram was a man not looking for God. 
But God was looking for a man like Abram. The first thing that I want you to see from this passage this morning is God pursues undeserving sinners. God pursues undeserving sinners. In this passage, we see a pattern that has been established from the beginning of Genesis. And that is, who is the one who initiates a relationship between God and people? Is it people that are pursuing God? Or is it God who pursues the people? We have seen, even in the creation account itself, it says, in the beginning was God. And then, what did God do? He created, and what was the pinnacle of his creation? It was humans. Humans did not make themselves. They didn't simply evolve on accident, but they were the design of a creator God who wanted to have a relationship with them. And then as you look at the other subsequent people who come after Adam, you see that in each case, those who are godly are those whom God has pursued. There are no self-made, self-righteous people in God's economy. God is the one who pursues them. That's why I say God pursues undeserving sinners, people who don't deserve a relationship with God, and people who cannot earn a relationship with God are exactly the kind of people that God comes after. Notice in verse number one, it says, the Lord had said to Abram, God took initiative in speaking to his servant and coming to him with a promise. God's call to Abram emphasizes the undeserved mercy of God. Abram was someone who had been born in Ur of the Chaldeans, which was a wealthy city located in what is now modern-day Iraq. Archaeologists believe that Ur was a well-designed metropolis with a stable economy, a surplus of wealth, a decent-sized population, and a relatively safe place to live. Thus, when God appeared to Abram and spoke to him, it must have been shocking because Abram had everything under control and life was going well. And now, without his prompting or prodding, God has pursued him. God spoke to an ordinary sinful man, Abram, and God directed him to leave everything that he knew for a land that had been cursed. Now, when we think about Canaan, we think of promise, and we think of the promised land and the place where God would return and restore Israel to the land. But if you remember the curse on Ham and his descendants through Canaan, there was a curse, and they were the outcasts. The Shemites and the Japhethites were the good guys, so to speak, those who, were, who did what was right by their father Noah and whom God honored. So for God to call Abram, who was a descendant of Shem, to go to the land populated by the descendants of Canaan, that didn't look immediately appealing. That didn't look like the best opportunity in the world. The better opportunity would have been to stay right where he was, where there was wealth and prosperity and security and stability, where he had his family and access to his friends. And yet God says, I have something far better than you could possibly imagine. God pursued a relationship with Adam or, or with Abram, and what's significant is he chose an idolater. He chose an idolater. What kind of person was Abram? Well, Joshua tells us in Joshua 24. 
he said to all the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates river and worshiped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. Joshua, as he's leading the people of Israel after their time of captivity, many years after the time of Abram, he's leading them to occupy the promised land of Canaan that is first promised here in Genesis chapter 12, is reminding them that their forefather, Abraham, was someone who had been a polytheistic idolater. He had come certainly from the line of Shem, but somewhere along the line, the worship of the one true God had been diluted by the worship of many gods. Before we judge Abram and Terah, his father, and those that came before them, think in our own lives how Those of us who've been raised in the church and around the gospel know who the one true God is as he's been revealed in Jesus Christ. And yet over time, it is so easy to allow other little gods with a little G to come in between us and to undermine our relationship with God. Though we may not be polytheistic idolaters in the sense of picturing people worshiping graven images or actual carvings of false gods, it is so easy for all of us to worship something other than the one true God. We worship our success. We desire more than anything to have affluence and influence. We also worship our families. We want nothing more than for our children to achieve more than we have achieved. We want them to have a better, more comfortable life than we have had. We want them to have a higher level of education than we have received. There are so many good things that we allow to become the main thing, and they eclipse God. Abram came from a family where God had been eclipsed, yet God chose him. And even though he was a sinner, and God chose to show him remarkable grace, And how did God guide this relationship that he initiated with this sinner? He chose to guide the relationship by offering him undeserved mercy. He offered him undeserved mercy. He says here when he speaks, go from your country and your people and your father's household to a land that I will show you. Remember, God was calling them from what they knew to something unknown. God was calling them from comfort to the uncomfortable. God was calling them from self-reliance to trust him. As Abram and his wife Sarai would take the call and obey and follow him, they didn't know how it was all going to work out, but they did know that God had spoken directly and offered a promise that seemed unimaginable and a promise that was so good that it must be true rather than so good that it could not possibly be true. It must be true. So as God is revealing this and showing them to go from Ur to Canaan, he said, I will be with you all along the way. He says, I will show you. God pursued a relationship with Abram, and God chose to direct Abram's steps all along the way as he would follow him. 
Abram, in turn, responded to God with simple obedience. We see beginning in verse number four, it just says, so Abram went. It doesn't record a dialogue or some debate or some back and forth where Abram said, well, wait, tell me more. Or have you thought about this? Or what about that? There's no discussion where Abram seems to be pushing back against the eternal God. Instead, we see Abram simply going as God called him. It says in verse 4, so Abram went. In verse 6, Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree at Morah at Shechem. And then in verse number 9, he set out and continued toward the Negev. The point is, Abram steadily made progress toward Canaan, even when he didn't have all the details, and when he may have actually had doubts. Because remember, 21st century Christians were thinking Canaan must have been paradise. It must have been the place everyone would want to get to. But at the time of Abram, Canaan was a wasteland. Canaan, though, may have been bountiful in agriculture and may have had incredible natural resources, the people that dwelled there hated God, and they despised him, and they were known for this. They were some of the people responsible originally for the Tower of Babel. They were the people who were descendants of Ham who had mocked his father and shared that mockery with his son. These were the people that were under the curse of God because of their rebellion. And God said, I'm going to show you where we're going and we're going to go there together. Every person who chooses to follow Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior chooses to follow God because God first initiated a relationship with them. We may think in our own way of our salvation as some decision that we made after considering it for months or years. We may consider that we chose God after looking at rational evidence for the existence of God. We could even say we consider ourselves someone who responded to God or chose God because it just felt like the right thing to do. But behind all of our experiences and all of our explanations is the divine initiative of God. No one seeks after God, the apostle says, the apostle Paul, because all of us seek after our own sin and selfishness instead. God pursues undeserving sinners with his unimaginable grace. And this is something we should never lose sight of. There is no one righteous, not even one, Paul said. No one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away and have become worthless because there is no one who does good, not even one. Abram was not an exception to this rule. He was not someone who God said, finally, there's a good guy worth saving. But no, he said, there is a person that will bring me glory because I will make him my follower and I will make him a great nation who will be a blessing to all people. And in fact, jumping ahead of myself, it is through Abram that God will send Jesus Christ, the Savior of all people, because God knows we cannot save ourselves. John Davis has said this, that which we deserve, judgment, God mercifully withholds. And that which we do not deserve, gracious blessing, he freely gives. This is exactly what Abram is experiencing and what all of us can experience through Jesus Christ. 
Do you recognize yourself as a condemned sinner who needs forgiveness? Do you realize that you deserve the judgment of God for every sin that you have done or ever would do? You don't deserve mercy, and God doesn't say, well, you're a good guy with good intentions, or you're a nice lady, and you are well-meaning. God sees sin as sin, and he judges it all, but he offers forgiveness through his son, Jesus. Salvation has always been and will always be God's gracious gift to undeserving sinners. So we've seen first in this passage that God pursues undeserving sinners. Secondly, I want us to see that God promises unimaginable grace. God promises unimaginable grace. And this gets to what we call God's covenant with Abram. I'm not going to impact the whole covenant teaching this morning because that overlaps with chapter 15 and chapter 17. So we'll get there in due time. But this morning, what I want you to see from these promises that God is making to Abraham is God's continued initiative in his promise. Notice the phrase, I will. It appears repeatedly in verse 1 through 3. He says, go to the land I will show you. That's God. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will bless those Or I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Again, over and over again, we see God making promises that to Abram must have been beyond his ability to fully grasp what was being promised. I will make you into a great nation How is it that God would choose a childless man to become a great nation? He's already 75 years old, married to his wife Sarai, and they have yet to have children. In fact, perhaps one of the reasons he had taken in Lot, his nephew, is because he didn't have children of his own, and Lot's father, Haran, had died. And now God is saying that this childless man and woman would somehow become a great nation? While Abram and Sarah's herds and livestock multiplied and increased their personal wealth, they remained infertile as a married couple. So when God promises here to make them into a great nation and bless them, Abram could not have imagined the all-powerful grace of God. It was simply beyond his ability to compute what was going on there. Not only would God give Abram and Sarai a son named Isaac, but he would also give them innumerable descendants. God would bless Abram by making him a great nation, the nation that produced the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And anyone who professes faith in Jesus Christ is a child of Abraham and receives the perfect righteousness of Christ. Hear what Paul says in Romans 4 when he's explaining the importance of this promise. He says, therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and, not, and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life, excuse me, the God who gives life to the dead and calls us into being 
things that we're not. God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. The blessing that was promised to Abram extended far beyond anything that Abram could have possibly conceived at that moment. God wasn't merely interested in making this man into a nation, but God wanted to make his own glory great through Jesus Christ and the many people who would believe in him with faith like Abram. You see, we have the opportunity through the gospel of Jesus Christ to be recipients of this promise. And again, not by our initiative, but by our response of God's goodness and his grace. God has promised Abram unimaginable grace. First, that a childless man and his wife would become a nation, but secondly, that a distant descendant of Shem would have his own great name. That a distant descendant of Shem would have his own great name. God promised Abraham an incredible reputation. But it must be laid out in the context of chapter 11 where it says, from Shem. Notice in chapter 11, verse number 10, it says, this is the account of Shem's family line. And why is that? Because Shem is the one who honored his father and God gave him a blessing. Shem was the one with the great name and reputation up until this point. And Shem is the one who they would have looked to, though distantly perhaps. But God is saying, now, Abram, I'm going to make your name great, and you will become a blessing to all people. Until the introduction of Abram in Genesis 11, and God's promise to him here in chapter 12, the great names of God's followers included people like Adam and Seth and Enoch and Noah and Shem. But now God is saying that Abram, a distant descendant of these well-known sons of God, would become even greater in reputation. Abram's new name, Abraham, given in chapter 17, verse 5, would mean that he would be the father of many, not just an exalted father, but the father of many, many people. And God would make him a blessing to all through his innumerable descendants that he could not yet imagine, with the most significant descendant being Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. Hear how Matthew opens his gospel in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. He says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. God indeed made Abraham's name great. It reverberates throughout the Bible and human history. Even non-Jewish and non-Christian people recognize the importance of Abraham. So how could God do this? God would build his reputation through a man that he chose, and through that man he would make him a nation that would bless all people. And this would happen by God's incredible power and by God's generous grace. Well, what's more in this promise is how could God use a struggler and make or give him a great blessing? How could God use a struggler and make him a great blessing? Well, that gets us to verse 
number three, where he says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. God, in his generous grace, promised to form an alliance with Abram. In his covenant with Abram, God would bless Abram's allies, and he would curse Abram's enemies. No one would come between God and Abram. God promised him an unbreakable relationship. This man who had struggled in that he was raised in an idolatrous home, perhaps himself struggled with idolatry, would now have an exclusive relationship with the one true God. This is an incredible thing that God would choose to do this. And I'm putting tremendous emphasis this morning on God's choice and initiative, and it's simply our response to his kindness. But this relationship between God and Abram would not only bless Abram and Sarai, but it would also come to bless everyone on earth, including us. The Apostle Paul refers back to Abraham when he explains the gospel in the letter to the Galatians. He makes the point that God foreknew how this promise to Abram would bring Gentiles like us into the household of God. He writes this in Genesis or Galatians chapter 3. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abram. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And he goes on to say, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So this raises a question from Paul's words about Abram and the promise made to him. The question is this, have you been blessed through Abram with faith in the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ? Have you been blessed through Abram with faith in the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ? Has God made himself known to you? And have you responded to him with repentance and faith, turning from your sin and trusting him for the forgiveness of your sin? You don't need to be a 75-year-old herdsman like Abraham to respond to God's call. Children, as soon as you understand that you're a sinner and that Christ forgives your sin, you can ask him to save you. Teenagers, you don't need to wait to sow wild oats and to live some sort of fantastical life that you imagine for yourself before you turn to God as some mature adult later. But no, you should turn to God as soon as you understand that God is pursuing you, that God wants to have a relationship with you. God offers his grace and his forgiveness freely, but we must respond to it by acknowledging our need and receiving his promise. This promise was not just for a man in the ancient Near East called Abram. This promise is for you and it is for me. God's promise overcomes human rebellion in every generation. So whether you're an optimist or a pessimist, you can turn to the grace of God because his grace is better than you imagined and your need is greater than you understand. We must turn to God. And when we do, we receive God's promise 
That's the third point I want you to see this morning. First, I said God pursues undeserving sinners. Second, God promises unimaginable grace. And the third point is that we must receive God's promise. In, chapter, in verse number four of chapter 12, we see Abram responding by picking up and going. We don't know all of the details, but we do understand from chapter 11 that he had been living with his father and his brother and his other extended family, and things were going well. But as they were settled in Haran, God called Abram to move even farther away from his family. Why did God choose Abram and not Terah? I don't know. I'm not God. Why did God choose Abram and not Nahor, his other brother? I don't know. I'm not God. God was pleased to choose Abram, and Abram pleased God by responding to his choice. God was pleased to choose Abram, and Abram was pleased to respond to his choice. So as Abraham went, he took his nephew Lot with him, and it gives a comment here about his age And this is significant because, again, they had no children. He took his wife with him and all the possessions they had accumulated and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. As they traveled along the way, they recognized God's hand and God's favor because, remember, they're entering into unfamiliar territory and perhaps hostile people that would occupy the territory. And yet, as they traveled, notice in verse number seven, or at the end of six, end of seven, that at the time the Canaanites were in the land, but the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. Now that his feet are on the soil of Canaan and his eyes can witness the expanse of the horizon of this land that was being, he was being led to, God says, I'm going to promise this land to you and to your descendants. So what does Abram do in response? He builds an altar to worship. He doesn't say, great, let's get out the measuring instruments and let's quickly erect borders or let's determine where the prime real estate is so I can get busy increasing my wealth even more. No, instead, his response to God is one of worship. And then from there, verse 8 says, he continued on east in the hills of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord, and he called on the name of the Lord. For the first time in this passage, we're eight verses in, and now Abram is calling to the Lord. So far, God has been extending his call on Abram, and now Abram is calling to the Lord, but he's not calling with questions. He's calling with praise. And he has submitted his life which is evidenced by his new location, and it's evidenced by the altar that he had erected for worship. Abram embarked on an uncharted journey in complete obedience to God. He traded what he knew for the unrealized promises of God, and the result of this single act of obedience not only affected Abram and his wife Sarai, but it changed the course of human history. Contrast this with the builders of Babel in chapter 11. The builders of Babel thought they would make a name for themselves, and they defied God. Rather than multiplying and filling the earth, they decided to gather everyone into a towering city that would approach God. 
Yet, ironically, none of their names have transcended their era. And the structure they built is no longer extant. Think about that. The name of the tower is not named after some great or mighty person. The name of the tower is Babel, which means confusion, which only underscores God's judgment. Abram, on the other hand, obeyed God and was honored as a patriarch of the faith and a man of God throughout countless generations down to our own generation today. Abram, like all believers, entrusted everything to God. He had no children, but he was promised a family. He had no soil to cultivate, but he was promised a land. He was promised a blessing, but he experienced famine in the land. And he lived with a promise, but he experienced only toil upon the earth that the Lord had cursed. In short, Abram was forced into dependent trust in the Lord. Those are the words of William Van Gemeren, who brilliantly summarized all that Abram did in spite of the evidence that was sometimes around him. It leads to the question I want to ask us, and that is, are you willing to leave everything behind in order to follow Jesus Christ? Are you willing to forsake what you know about life and what you think you have figured out for a relationship with the God who wants to know you? the God who does know you, in fact. When Jesus was speaking to his disciples, do you remember how he approached them? Did he go look for the 12 best men in Palestine and say, bring me the elite people from the temple. Bring me the young men that are coming up that are going to change the world. No, he went to fishermen. He went out to where they were. And what were his words to them? What was the invitation? Did he say, I have an incredible plan. If you'll spend three years with me, I'm going to make you world famous and you are going to become a person of influence. No, Jesus' words to the disciples was, come, follow me. There wasn't a lot of explanation. What were they coming to? What, were, what would it mean to follow him? And yet that was as much as they got and that's all they needed. They followed him. They came with him, and they, in fact, did spend three and a half years with the Son of God, who changed them forever, and who used them to spread his message to all people. As Jesus was challenging these same disciples later in life and preaching, here's what he said about the call to follow him. In Matthew 10, 37, he said, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Mark says it this way in Mark 10. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecutions and then the age to come, eternal life. Did you catch that? The call is the same. The call that God gave Abram was come follow me. The call that he gave the disciples was, come, follow me. And the call that he's extending to you is, come, follow me. 
So have you received the call? Have you heard the promise of God and have you accepted it for your own life? Are you willing to turn to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins by first admitting you're a sinner who needs the mercy of God rather than the judgment of God? And do you understand that God has taken the initiative to pursue a relationship with you even though you're undeserving? And he's promised to give you unimaginable grace that you cannot comprehend, but it's a gift you must receive. When Miles and Madeline were very young and we were enjoying the Christmas season and all the gifts that were exchanged, we had a discussion when they were about three and five years old about the significance of gifts and how they're given by people that love us and care for us. And at that time in our life, we were living overseas, and many people from our church and our support here in America were gracious to send us Christmas gifts. And I used it as an opportunity to remind my kids how much God loved us through our brothers and sisters in the church. But I also used it to illustrate how foolish it would be for us to say, we don't want your gifts. We don't care that you've sacrificed and sent things internationally. Or, you know, we're really disappointed that you sent us this instead of that. I mean, don't you know that we're DC, not Marvel? Or don't you know whatever? I tried to teach my kids that we receive the gifts that are given because the giver has an intention behind those gifts. And the giver usually knows something about us. And I highlighted that for them now, and I'll highlight it, or then, and highlight it for you now, that Christ has chosen the perfect gift that we all need. And that is the forgiveness of our sins so that we can be made right with God and enjoy an eternal relationship with him. But who are we to fuss at him and say, yes, but? But, do you understand this? Or what about that? We just simply need to receive the gift the way God has given it and grow in our understanding of God and watch how the blessing multiplies. So I'll conclude with this. Where are you in the promises of God? Have you accepted the promise of God and received it for your own life? If you have, follow the province with obedience. If you've not accepted the promise of God, see yourself as a sinner who's undeserving of grace, who can have the unimaginable benefit of mercy instead of judgment. And I call you to that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we conclude this morning, it is clear from this passage and really through the whole Bible that you are a sovereign God who loves your people. And we're thankful for that, Father, because we are sinners who don't love you. In fact, we recognize what the Apostle Paul calls us, that we're rebellious people who are opposed to you, we who were once your enemies, alienated from you, save for the gospel of Christ and his righteousness. So, Father, I pray this morning that you would draw people to yourself. If there's anyone gathered with us today that has heard the gospel and yet is still keeping it at arm's length, I pray that you will speak to their heart and mind, even as you spoke to Abram, and that you would arrest their attention and show them that they're an undeserving person, yes, but that you have unimaginable grace, and that grace abounds if they would simply receive it. So God, draw them to you, and draw those of us who are following you to greater obedience as we wrestle with what you have provided. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.